Welcome to episode one of the Analytically Speaking podcast series. This episode is entitled Transmission Infrared Imaging Microscopy with Data Analytics. I'm Jerry Workman, the Senior Technical Editor of Spectroscopy and your podcast host. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for a deeper look into all things measured with light. Spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation, commonly referred to as light, with matter. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Barry K. Levine, who is a Regents Professor of Chemistry at Oklahoma State University, where he teaches and performs research in the area of analytical chemistry. Professor Levine's research interests encompass many aspects of analytical chemistry, including infrared and Raman spectroscopy, forensic chemistry, and data-driven science, including pattern recognition, multivariate curve resolution, multivariate calibration, and genetic algorithms and other evolutionary and data analytics techniques. He is on the editorial board of multiple chemometrics journals and has received prestigious awards and recognitions for his work. For example, he was awarded the Kowalski Prize for the best chemometrics paper by the Journal of Chemometrics and was made a fellow of the Society for Applied Spectroscopy. He has received the Eastern Analytical Symposium Award in Chemometrics. We are so pleased that he is here with us today. We have invited Barry to our Analytically Speaking podcast to discuss his recent research on transmission infrared imaging microscopy and to describe the data analysis techniques he is using. Barry's infrared microscopy work involves aspects of sampling, spectra collection, image generation, and data analysis for infrared imaging and sample identification. Specific data analytics used for his work include alternate least squares reconstruction of the infrared spectra of the individual layers from automotive paint samples using machine learning techniques, spectral database searching, and special experimental design methods. Well, Barry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get started. So Barry, what led you to using transmission infrared imaging microscopy to analyze automotive paint in forensic applications? Well, the current approach to forensic automotive paint analysis uses Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy. And although its implementation is sound, it's based on best analytical practices from the 1970s. My interest was applying modern techniques of infrared spectroscopy to analyze automotive paint samples. And that led me to the idea of using infrared imaging with its attendant advantages for automotive paint analysis. Because of limitations in the availability of databases for forensic automotive paint analysis, any new development methodology is going to be limited to infrared spectroscopy. So Barry, why is the identification of automotive paint important and who is interested in this? Well, often the only physical evidence recovered from the crime scene of a vehicle-related fatality, such as a hit and run, is automotive paint from the suspect's vehicle. Often there are no witnesses to the hit and run, and police may be unable to develop a suspect. In these situations, the layer structure, the color, the composition of the automotive paint transferred to the vehicle or clothing of the victim can be characterized and should be because it can serve as a fingerprint 
either linking or excluding vehicles from association with the crime scene when a forensic automotive paint database is used to confirm the number of possible vehicles. That is, this paint that they recovered um, could be a specific make, model, or year of another vehicle or several different make, models, and years of other vehicles. They could have contributed to that question paint sample. Even if police are fortunate enough to have a paint sample from a suspect vehicle to compare, this would still be the same approach taken by a forensic paint examiner when presented with both a questioned, that's an unknown paint sample, and a known or control sample from a suspect vehicle. In either situation, with or without a sample from a suspect vehicle, an automotive paint database would be used to confirm the number of other possible vehicle makes, models, and years that it could, could have contributed to the question paint sample, even if a known paint sample is obtained from a suspect vehicle. Now, interestingly enough, studies performed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, that is the RCMP, they're the ones that did the pioneering work, pioneering work in this area, over 45 years ago, showed that automotive vehicles can be discriminated by directly comparing the color layer sequence and the chemical composition of each individual layer in an OEM paint. That means original equipment manufacturer material. Now, if it's a repaint, you know, you, um, you're not going to be able to do much. Now, to make these comparisons possible, a comprehensive automotive paint database was developed by the RCMP called Paint Data Query. And that's what's used predominantly today just about everywhere in all North America. So if the original layers are present in an unknown paint sample, PDQ can assist in identifying the make and model of the vehicle, as well as the ear range or potential vehicles from which the paint sample may have originated. And that at least can contribute to a lead uh, in an investigation. And later on, be especially important uh, when going to trial to show that, in fact, the uh, alleged perpetrator uh, did have that vehicle and potentially his vehicle could have caused the accident. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, that should be a warning out there to all those people who think they can get away with a hit and run. Apparently, that technology is available to find them out. Absolutely. Let me ask you, Barry, how are the samples prepared and analyzed using imaging microscopy for this application? You probably don't have very much sample to work with, right? No, you don't. Uh, typically, um, your paint chip, if it's from a vehicle-related collision, one vehicle hitting another, it could be about five millimeters uh, along the largest dimension, maybe a little bigger. Now, if it involves a person being hit, okay, there's much less momentum transfer and the chip correspondingly is going to be a lot smaller, often only a millimeter. Uh, the key is um, to our experiment in imaging microscopy anyway, is cross-sectioning. And cross-sectioning is the actual process that is used for tissue samples in a medical laboratory. So we're in a sense borrowing this sort of methodology. The goal of cross-sectioning in this experiment is to expose the different layers of the automotive paint to an IR beam that is then rostered across the exposed edge of the paint sample. So all the layers of the paint sample can be interrogated in a single analysis, as opposed to sectioning each paint layer um, individually under a stereo microscope using a scalpel 
and then placing that paint layer between two diamond anvils to collect the IR spectrum. Now, to prepare these paint samples for analysis, um, it's necessary to detach the OEM paint from the metal substrate using a sharp knife. In the case of the paint sample sticking as transfer evidence to another vehicle. On the other hand, if it's on the clothing of the individual, that's not a problem. So the surface of the, of the OEM paint sample that's obtained is typically cleaned with methanol to eliminate interference from any particulate matter or dirt. Um, and I'm mentioning this now because I once attended a uh, symposium at NIST and some of the people there that participated in the symposium simply didn't understand that you actually have to clean the sample um, that you're going to work with before you work with it. Well, anyway, the clean sample can then be cross-sectioned um, using a uh, by microtomy. And um, in our experiment, we place it between two rigid polyethylene sheets of plastic to hold the paint chip for cross-sectioning. Uh, we don't like to embed the paint sample in an epoxy, and the reason is that sometimes the epoxy will intercalate into the individual paint layers. So we then have compromised the sample, which we hope to uh, identify in terms of automotive manufacturer, make, line, manuf make, line year, etc., uh, using an automotive paint database. Well, we don't want to do that. So um, by having it, by using the original paint sample, placing it between two rigid polyethylene sheets, we cross-section it in the current experiment using a stainless steel blade in a microtome. And the result is we expose the edges and we can see the individual paint layers. Now, the thinly sliced cross-sectioned um, sample that we're using uh, is going to be anywhere, in this case, from four to seven microns thick after we do the cross-sectioning. But it will contain all four paint layers. Um, and this will work very well if the largest dimension of the paint is five millimeters. Currently, we're working using a technique called ultramicronomy for much smaller paint samples, those that are one millimeter across or even less. Uh, typically, we're going to take each cross-section peel. We're going to place it in our barium fluoride disc and inspect it under a Leica visible microscope just to check for defects such as crevices or cracks that could otherwise impede our analysis. And the section of the VAF2 disc that does not have the peel, well, that'll be very nice for us because it can serve as our background for our IR image analysis. So this is how we prepare our sample for IR imaging. Wow, that's very interesting. So the sample is placed under the microscope and you you, you apply um, alternate least squares reconstruction of the infrared spectra of the individual layers from original automotive paint. And then you use machine learning methods to improve the accuracy and speed of the forensic paint examination. How does this work? Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, once, we, once we're satisfied with our sample and we insert into our infrared imaging microscope, um, we then do this experiment. Now, before I explain it, I want to point out the advantages of doing this approach. Uh, they're really threefold. First, the actual analysis time is faster as the IR spectra of all four layers will be collected in a single analysis and each layer is then decatenated mathematically. And the advantage of that is that um, the problem when 
when people typically cross-section each individual layer using a scalpel under a stereo microscope is that they may sample too close to the boundary between adjacent layers. So they can produce a, um, a peel that actually is a mixture of two layers. And if you don't have a pure spectrum of each layer, you're not going to be able to make meaningful comparisons and hence can't take advantage of a paint database. A final advantage of our, of our, of our experiment is that infrared library searching of the recovered layers using these pattern recognition assisted tools that we've developed can be directly in, uh, coupled uh, to this imaging experiment. And that can result in a considerable time savings. Now, the art here, which is the interrogation of the chemometrics into the analytical workflow, that's what makes this experiment so challenging, okay? It um, actually strengthens both the infrared imaging and the chemometrics. And part of the art involves translating the image to a line map. That is, whenever we get an image, all right, um, we um, have to take it and convert it to a data vector. And we do so using, uh, we do so um, through a process called generating a line map. Now, how we generate this line map is we have an oblique transit crossing the line map to uh, collect as many spectra as possible. And the advantage of using an oblique line map is that uh, an oblique line through a transit through this image is the fact that we're going to get a lot of spectra between the boundaries between the layers. That's going to be critical for us in our reconstruction. And this is how, once we get our infrared image, how we can then convert it to a form that we can then apply um, chemometric methods. By the way, um, when en whenever people do infrared imaging, you know, they get a matrix. They're going to have to convert it to a data vector. I was listening to a presentation the other day where they were explaining how they do handwriting analysis through uh, imaging, you know, visible imaging. And uh, they have a prescribed procedure for taking the image, which is two-dimensional, and converting it into a data vector, one-dimensional. Uh, we have to do the same thing, uh, but the advantage of the procedure that we use is that we can retain the ordering of the layers, and it just makes our experiment much easier. That's, that's fascinating. I can see when you use the oblique data collection that you do get um, much more, many more spectra. And can you tell us, you know, what the mathematical tool sets are that you use for performing this method, you know, once you collect the, the sample spectra? Oh, absolutely. Now, not surprisingly, alternating least squares, ALS, is the primary tool used for the reconstructions. Uh, now, to, pro to properly parameterize ALS for these spectral reconstructions, we use a method called the Verimax Extended ro Rotation. That's something that I actually developed um, in my group um, in 2003 when I was formerly at Clarkson University. And it does an outstanding job of providing initial estimates of the concentration profiles for each paint layer. That's really what I need. Our past studies have shown that the Verimax extended rotation is superior to a variety of methods, including key set factor analysis developed by Malinowski, window factor, window's factor analysis, 
and even orthogonal projection analysis. And it, it serves, it gives us the starting point we need for ALS. ALS is a powerful method, provided that the starting point is good. You have a good starting point, it will work. If your initial estimates of the concentration profile for ALS for each layer are not good enough, it doesn't work very well. Now, interestingly enough, the very max extended rotation is actually more complicated than ALS if one were to look at the coat. Um, and this is a result of what uh, the very max extended rotation is doing. It's actually trying to determine the extremum points. That is the unique spectrum, most indicative of each layer from which we can develop these concentration profiles for each layer. And once we can do that, we then have good starting points for our ALS reconstruction. Now, there is a limitation in the kind of data that can be analyzed using this type of methodology. Um, it really requires that a linear relationship exists between the spectra and the amount of chemical moiety in the sample responsible for the spectrum. Spectrum, excuse me. If this relationship, if it's linear, this methodology works very well. You know, what's truly amazing is that when you're dealing with systems that are linear or nearly linear, um, there is just so many things that can be done if the data is properly pre-processed. And that certainly is a, a important component of our workflow. Can you say some more about the data pre-processing that you use? Oh, absolutely. Um, for example, when we pre-process the data, um, what we need to do is we have to do baseline correction. We also have to be concerned about there not being any peak shifts. That can sometimes happen too when we look at spectra from our line maps. And if we do observe them, they're quite noticeable. We have to delete those spectra. Sometimes we have to recompute our line map. Uh, in addition, we like to get rid of the presence of CO2 uh, in our spectra because uh, the way our IN10 MX microscope works, we don't have our sample in an enclosed setting. So it's going to be exposed to the atmosphere and you're going to have a, quite a bit of CO2. We like to get rid of that as well. Um, and in addition, there are certain regions of the spectra uh, near the low wave numbers that are just a little too noisy and they're going to negatively impact our spectral reconstructions. So as a result, we typically will cut off our spectra at around 748 reciprocal centimeters. ALS reconstructions work very, very well, provided that your data that you're reconstructing has very high signal to noise. So you don't want a lot of asperious random noise there. And also you're concerned about more systematic noise. Uh, such as baseline offsets and baseline sloping. And you need to get rid of those too. But if you do it, ALS then becomes an incredibly powerful procedure. Well, I noticed that in your paper, which is referred to below in the notes for this podcast, you, you found there was a problem using IR spectra collected from an in-house library. And that was collected with a high pressure transmission diamond cell. And the ALS reconstructed spectra of the same paint samples that you obtained at ambient pressure using an IR transmission microscope equipped with a barium fluoride cell. Can you just explain what that all means? Well, with regard to these peak shift differences that we observed, remember this is like the same samples and you're getting peak shift differences. Uh, it's a result 
of the S and P polarization of the interferometer for the spe FTIR spectrometer that was used to collect our in-house library being different than that of our IN10 um, uh, MX microscope. Uh, I like to note that both instruments were manufactured by, by, uh, by Nicolet. Nevertheless, their interferometers are different and their S and P polarizations uh, are different. What's, what does that mean? If you're dealing with a polymer and you stretch that polymer, okay, how that polymer responds to S polarized light in terms of absorption will be different than how it responds to P polarized light. And that is what we're observing here because when you're using a high pressure diamond cell, you're not only compressing the polymer, you're also stretching it. So those peak shifts exist and there's no way to predict where they're going to be. And normally if you can't correct for them, you're really not gonna be able to do much, okay? In terms of library matching, any pattern recognition work to assist the library matching because you cannot obviate these peak shifts uh, through some post-processing uh, of the data per se. So what we do here is that we had previously developed an ATR simulation algorithm, uh, which allowed us to take transmission spectra from our in-house library and convert it to ATR spectra um, that we could then match using originally our IS50 FTIR spectrometer. Now, in the process of developing this algorithm, we actually have six equations that we solve the Picard iteration. What we also do is we have spectra from our ATR that we generate that corresponds to the same samples that are present in our in-house library, specifically 13 samples. And what we do is we change the parameters in this simulation um, in order to get the best match between this experimental spectrum and the spectra that we're attempting to simulate using as our input our in-house spectra, which are been done with transmission compared to ATR. Now, originally, uh, we did not realize the advantage that we had here. Um, uh, we just, we did not fully comprehend everything that we were doing. And later on, I had a student named Francis Kofi, and he was presented with this problem in the paper. And how he solved it, he just knew it intuitively, was to take the transmission spectra from the IN10MX microscope, convert it to ATR spectra. So it would look like it came from the IS50. He took um, the spectra from our in-house library, which is transmission spectra, applied our ATR correction algorithm, and it looked like ATR spectra that was from, again, our IS50 instrument. So suddenly these peak shifts disappeared it not only helped us quite a bit with library matching, but we were able to apply pattern recognition methods to it to further facilitate the library matching. So part of this discovery was based on chance, you know, doing a real problem and someone having an insight about doing it. Uh, but it was also based on how we had developed the original ATR correction algorithm. It was actually quite a task and it included uh, some components that ordinarily people wouldn't think about using, but because a very thorough job was done, it had this capability. Well, that's very clever. Um, 
You know, there's a lot of people that do spectral searching and they don't pay attention to the difference between the instrument they're using to collect spectra and the library, the original library spectra. So matching these up seems very important to get. It can, it can get them into trouble. Now, if you're doing simple organic compounds, I don't think yeah. it's an issue. But when you're yeah. doing polymers, okay, um, and depending on how the spectra are collected for the polymers, it, it can very well be an issue, especially and for other specialized libraries, too. Well, can you say a little bit about the, for example, in an organic chemistry library or even polymer library, they may only have a few examples for a particular polymer, whereas there may be literally hundreds of different variations of that polymer that exist. So that can be a problem, too, right? Well, it can be, and I would say the following. We have previously developed a cross-correlation library searching algorithm, um, which uh, allowed us to identify the spectra that were most similar uh, to our unknown um, using different criteria than uh, what is used in the conventional search algorithms. I would say the following. This particular um, library searching algorithm works very well when you're trying to differentiate spectra that are very, very similar. Um, and, but on the other hand, there really isn't an advantage per se if you're trying to differentiate spectra that are quite dissimilar for the simple reason that the conventional library search algorithms based on correlation or Euclidean distance, you know, will do a great job. But the, uh, the key here is a mastery of the details in the workflow that were used to collect the data for both the in-house library and also for the uh, sample whose IR spectra that you collected. Um, there has to be some um, correspondence um, between these details in order to have a successful library search. Well, how many years did this research take? And um, can you tell us how you went about developing this method? You know, when and why, and a little bit about the history. Well, it's interesting. Um, the idea for this imaging experiment came about in 2013. Okay. And uh, I was able to get support from it from the National Institute of Justice. So we got our grant, I think, in 2015. That's when we started. And it was it took several years. Um, there was a lot of things that we had to learn, and we encountered problems that we did not anticipate. However, uh, and one of them, of course, was the problem with the S&P polarization uh, between the different interferometers that were used to collect the in-house spectral data and the IR spectral data that we were obtaining, okay, in our research using our instruments. Uh, we did not anticipate that problem at all. Uh, nevertheless, we were able to get a workaround and then the workaround was fine, but then we had to understand why. And I had to confess, it took me about six months to realize what the source of the problem was and why we were able to solve it. Um, so that was one aspect of it. Another aspect is we, we tried different epoxies 
and we learned about this problem of intercalation of the epoxy into some of the paint layers for some samples, which is not what you want. This experiment is think about the peel that we're using currently in, in the experiments that I described. It's four to seven microns thick. We're using an aperture typically of 20 microns times 20 microns for our detector. So I think you will agree it's just um, mind-boggling how well ALS can do under these circumstances. Now, when we tried working with um, much thinner, uh, much smaller samples, um, we had to use a larger aperture, 50 microns by 50 microns, just to be able to get a decent signal. You would figure we have no chance, okay, of being able to differentiate the different paint layers. And in fact, in many samples we can, but not all samples. We attribute that, our, our current problems, uh, to twofold. One, we're going to need an IR uh, microscope that has higher spatial resolution. You know, we can use a smaller aperture, you know, a, a smaller IR beam size. And a second problem is that um, with regard to these very small paint samples, we can't do them conventionally. We have to use an ultra microtone. Um, so what we're interested in doing right now is seeing how far we can go with this experiment. I believe using ultra micronomy and specifically um, parameterizing that experiment better than how we have been doing it, the cutting, and combining it with a high resolution microscope, uh, I think we, a higher, res, higher spatial resolution microscope, I think we can go pretty far. Well, that's that's an interesting history. It took a lot of development and continuity to to pull that off. Absolutely, and you wouldn't get that at a company, <laughs> right? How many people were on the team basically that did? Oh, did over the most years, of this work. Yes, um, I think about five or six people. Uh, some of them have jobs at universities. Some have jobs at companies. Um, uh, but it, it's a nice range of people. They all did very well, you know, once they graduated, which of course, from my standpoint, is very important. Yes, theirs as well. <laughs> uh, yes, theirs as well too. <laughs> so um, is are these tools uh, useful for other applications in spectroscopy? Can you do some brainstorming on that for us? I think currently um, the, these tools that we develop are focused for uh, infrared um, uh, spectroscopy although we're beginning to look into Raman, all right, and beginning to develop what I would call comparable tools. Do you think of Raman shows promise for this specific application on the uh, auto paint? For, for the clear coat layers, it can, it can leverage more information um, about the identity of the automotive paint sample in terms of the original vehicle than uh, FTIR spectroscopy, definitely. As for the other layers, I become concerned because of the fluorescence background. Oh, yes. Okay. But um, Raman has not yet been fully explored. Uh, we recently done a study, which we will be publishing, which will certainly show the advantages of using Raman to characterize the clear coats. But there's a problem. We have infrared libraries. We do not have Raman libraries of automotive paint. Oh, there you go. Yes. And again, that's a real limitation. 
Speaking of limitations, that's a good segue. What's really the limitations of this method? Have you found there's any controversy surrounding the, the use and limitations of this? In other words, you know, you have to bring it in, into a courtroom in, in several situations as a forensic investigation. What, what have you found to be any problems surrounding well, it? Well, believe it or not, people nowadays will use micronomy, especially for small samples. They'll cast it in an epoxy. They'll generate spectra. And, uh, and they'll show that the um, known pain sample um, from the suspect vehicle and that which they recovered from the crime scene, uh, their different layers, their spectra, uh, match up very well. So in that sense, uh, they've already done that um, using um, infrared microscopy. Um, and they look at each layer separately usually employing an ATR objective so they can get the better spatial resolution. Uh, but as I mentioned before, um, this experiment is um, sort of the next step in development. Maybe it's a bridge too far, maybe it isn't. That's yet to be determined. But um, there, the advantage of using cross-sectioning, whether in terms of just trying to identify the individual layers and working with them to get images, to get spectra, or trying to do a truly image analysis experiment, is that the um, amount of time it takes to train a person to do that may be less than someone that's cross-section, someone that's sectioning the paint samples individually under a stereo microscope, and then, um, um, once they do that, you know, then taking each of the section layers and putting them into a, a into a high pressure diamond transmission cell um, for ARs uh, for, you know, to generate a, a spectrum of each layer. And the reason is that the, um, you know, it's a it's a very the, the technical skill of the individuals that do these current types of experiments will vary. Some people just are better at it than others. Um, the approaches that I'm describing here, um, everyone should be able to do it reasonably well because it involves much less manual skills. Very interesting. Well, and for our listeners, how can one find the software and instrumentation tools to use and explore this technique? And are you doing collaborative work with someone if they had an interest in this? Well, with regard to the software tools, we developed them ourselves. There isn't a company that sells this stuff. Um, and I think you would agree that, um, you know, an instrument manufacturer is primarily concerned with supporting his instrument. If it's an FTIR um, um, spectrometer or an FTIR microscope, uh, they're most interested in just having the software to do a typical analyses. Um, the analyses done here, because of the wide and different ranges of samples involved, many of them historical, which are then being compared to new samples, um, require um, you know, quite a more complex workflow. And that's not envisioned, okay, in terms of um, materials, software, 
which is currently under development uh, by contemporary instrument, instrument vendors for the simple reason that these applications uh, would be viewed with some justification as more uh, the exception rather than the rule. Nevertheless, this capability certainly is important in law enforcement and potentially in cultural heritage and other such uh, high technological applications. Okay, so if other researchers are interested in pursuing some of this or in collaborating with you, they can simply contact you by email. Yes, they can. Yes, all right. Well, you know, just to follow up, Barry, what are some of the best resources that listeners can go to for finding more information on this specific topic and these tools? Well, I publish several papers in a variety of journals, and those papers are available. For example, the ATR correction algorithm is featured in two papers in applied spectroscopy. That would certainly be a good place to go. And the work that we've done with pattern recognition assistant infrared library searching, that's also, that's also described in several papers and that in applied spectroscopy in Talanta, um, in the microchemical journal. And those would be other sources that they could check as well in terms of just the published literature. Uh, in the future, I'm planning to write some review articles and book chapters, which I hope to be available in a year or so. And they could better provide uh, uh, more detailed information on these matters. Well, thank you. Is there anything more you could add to our podcast discussion on this topic? I was going to say that I think it's if you're at a, if you're in a university, you're doing research. I think the key is to select a research problem that one perks your interest and also takes advantage of your entire analytical background as well as your ability to learn new things. Um, research directions, um, which are changed periodically, should be the product of careful thought and consideration and not done um, ephemerally. This will allow you to really identify a problem that can help you, you know, exploit your talents and really make a good contribution. Well, thank you, Barry, for such an informative and lively discussion on your work. I'm sure our audience has learned a lot about using infrared imaging microscopy and the various aspects of data analysis related to this topic. I know I have learned much. My thanks to all of our listeners and production and editing team that has worked diligently to make these podcasts possible. We invite our podcast audience to stay tuned to our next informative, analytically speaking episode. And remember what Albert Einstein once said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Have a great day. Bye.